Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Professor Paul Butler, the author of the book Chokehold, A Renegade Prosecutor's Radical Thoughts on How to Disrupt the System. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here, Lee. Now, first of all, can I ask you about the title of the book, Chokehold? That really becomes a metaphor throughout. Can you explain um, how you came to choose chokehold as your metaphor for discussing black incarceration? So a chokehold is a tool that some police use to try to make you do what they want, but you cannot do what they are ordering you to do because you cannot breathe. It's against regulations in many police departments, but that didn't stop the New York police officer from putting Eric Garner in a fatal chokehold. He said he couldn't breathe 13 times, and then he died there on the street. That image of them trying to make you do something, but you cannot do it because you cannot breathe, seemed like a way of thinking about the African-American experience in the United States. Black men are set up by the criminal justice system. We are targeted, and we're set up to fail. And so when I thought about my work as a prosecutor, it seemed like my job was to put black men in prison. And after years of being a prosecutor, And years after that of being a scholar and an activist on these issues, chokehold is about what I learned. Now, I think in the legal community and probably the wider American nation at large, we tend to talk about these incidents like Eric Garner's death as aberrations of the system, as the system having a momentary failure. And you argue that that's actually not the case. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about that? Lee, the system is working the way it's supposed to. So when we see police officers use violence against black people and even kill unarmed African-American men, and then people ask, well, why don't they get prosecuted? And in the rare times in which they do get prosecuted, Why don't they usually get convicted? I don't blame the prosecutors. I don't blame the jurors. Again, I think the system is working the way it's supposed to. The police have what I call superpowers, that they are bestowed by the Supreme Court, superpower to use deadly force, the superpower to make arrests, superpowers to racially profile. So in Chocode, I talk about some of the cases in which the Supreme Court tells the police that, yes, you can use this excessive force. One case involves a young man, Mr. Harris, in Georgia, Atlanta, 19-year-old black kid, speeding. Police try to pull him over. He should have stopped, but he didn't. He leads the police on a high-speed chase and Finally, the police deliberately rammed his car down a steep incline. The car burst into flames when it crashed. Fortunately, the man survives, but he's rendered a quadriplegic. The question before the court was, can the police do that? Uh, Can they really use deadly force to stop somebody uh, from speeding? And the Supreme Court said, 
Yes, they can. Since the young man was creating a danger to others, the police had the right to kill him to stop the danger, even though they could have stopped the danger by stopping the chase. They already had his license plate number, so they could have identified him. So that's just one example of many. The court doesn't say, obviously, that this power should only be used against African-American men. But now, every single case that comes up, the court is warned, this is how this power is going to be used. It turns out that that's absolutely right. The power is mainly directed against black people. And again, that leads to this result where we have this extraordinary violence uh, by the state, by the police, that's mainly directed against black men. Now, as you pointed out, often the restrictions or the laws are stated in completely colorblind terms, and they end up being used predominantly or excessively against black men. And you say in the book that there are four typical kind of explanations or theories about why this is. Could you go a little bit into them and maybe give us your opinion on which you think comes closest to the truth? Yeah, so let's be clear that I'm not saying that police officers are racist. I don't think cops are any more racist than law professors. I worked as a prosecutor for several years, and police officers who I work with, they have some of the most difficult jobs in the world. I don't have the the courage to do that kind of work. So I thought it was important to not blame our hardworking law enforcement officers, but to rather think about what's actually going on. And that's where I thought that there are four alternative versions of what the problem is. So everybody agrees that something is going on with race and police, with black men and law enforcement. What's the problem? Some people say the problem is is brothers. If black men would just pick up their pants and stop using the N-word, then we wouldn't have to worry about being stopped and frisked and shot by the police. Another version is that the problem is not too much policing in communities of color. It's too little. Uh, This is what President Trump says and Attorney General Sessions. So they think about back in the day when folks used to complain, 911 is a joke. Well, guess what? It's not a joke anymore. The police are everywhere in communities of color. And there are a lot of people who see that as a form of progress as reparations for the times when the police weren't there. I think the main way that the problem is described is as a relationship breakdown between police officers and communities of color. This is what a lot of liberals think. It's what the Obama administration thought. It's what the leading civil rights organizations like the NAACP and ACLU say. So the fix is to repair the relationship, to try to get police officers to understand black folks and black folks to understand the police. And there we get reforms like body cams and civilian review boards. And in extreme cases, the Department of Justice coming in and taking over the local police department. And finally, the version that gets articulated by the Movement for Black Lives and books like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander is that the problem is white supremacy. 
Uh, the problem is a racialized control of African-American people, something that historically has mutated from slavery to the old Jim Crow to the new Jim Crow. And, Lee, when I think about my work as a prosecutor, if you go to a criminal court in the District of Columbia, like in many of our big cities and small towns all over the country, you would think that white people don't commit crimes. You would think that white people don't use drugs, that they don't get into fights, that they don't steal, because they're just not present in the numbers that black and Latino people are. You know, I was in Iowa last week talking about my book. In Iowa, you don't see too many black people on the street. 4% of the population of the state is black. Guess where you see black folks, Lee? You see them in the county jail. 27% of the people locked up for drug crimes in Iowa are African-American. And they're only 4% of the population. So when I, again, think about the work that I did, which seemed like my job as a prosecutor or my job description should have been putting black men in prison. And when I think about all this data about racial disparities, about how black people are locked up for drug crimes, 60% of people who are locked up for drug crimes are black, even though all the data tells us that black people don't use drugs more than anybody else, where 13% of people will do the crime, 60% of people who do the time. So what my experience as a prosecutor, what my life experience as a black man, and what my research as a legal scholar tells me is that the movement for black lives has diagnosed the problem correctly. It's about racial control, and specifically with regard to African-American men, it's about the way that a lot of people are scared of us. We make a lot of people nervous and anxious. And so what the criminal justice system does is to respond to that by this series of laws and police practices and really everyday social practices as well that are designed to to contain the fear, to control African-American men. And so what people in the movement for Black Lives say is if we only worry about the police, uh, that's like fixing the symptom and not the disease. Uh, the disease is something that's more historic. Again, it's this way that as long as Black people have been in this country, there have been efforts, legal efforts to subordinate us, to control us. And what we're seeing in policing is just the latest iteration. Now, as you said, you have been a federal prosecutor. You now teach criminal law at Georgetown. What do you tell your students? What would you tell your fellow lawyers about what their role is in criminal justice? How can they make a difference? How can they change the status quo? What do you think lawyers should be doing to address this problem? This is a conversation I have a lot with my colleagues more than my students, because sometimes you wonder, especially as an African-American, what you would have done back in the day. Like during slavery, I hope that I would have been a runaway. I hope that I would have been one of those people who led slave uprisings, but I don't really know. The reality is most slaves didn't run away. Most of them didn't 
need the uprisings. And then when I think of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, I hope I would have been one of those people who sat in at lunch counters, one of the people who, who marched with, with Malcolm X or with Martin Luther King. What people in the movement for Black Lives say is, if you want to know what you would have done back in the day, ask yourself, what are you doing right now? Uh, because this movement is the civil rights issue of our time. And I think at some point, a lot of us, and especially those of us with privileged positions like being a law professor or being a lawyer, we're going to be asked to account for what our, our role was in the system, that we speak out against it, that we try to change it. And in that project, I think there is work for all of us. So for folks who are interested in reform, well, you can help support a bail fund. Uh, a lot of people are locked up because they're awaiting trial. They haven't been convicted of a crime, and often the bail isn't that much. It's just that 80% of the people who are in prison live below the poverty line. So even if we're talking about $500, in some instances $100, you know, they just can't make it. You know, people remember Sandra Bland, who was arrested on what sure looked like trumped-up charges, um, and really mishandled by a police officer, beat up by a police officer after a traffic stop. And she then sat in jail for three days, and tragically on that third day, she was found hung in her jail cell. Well, you know, there's so many tragedies that we can think about from that story, but one of them is, well, why was she in jail for three days for a stop that it resulted from a traffic infraction. A bail was about $500, and her family couldn't make it. And they were doing what a lot of poor folks try to do, which is to make calls and try to get the money together, but it took them a while. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of people have that issue. Most people don't have that same tragic outcome. But, you know, people do have the misfortune of having to stay in jail simply because they can't make bail. So again, a simple thing that you can do is to help support a bail fund in your neighborhood. In Chocode, I talk about reforms like that, and then I talk about more radical responses, which I think will lead to the kind of transformation that we need. Because, Lee, at the end of the day, we didn't talk about reforming slavery. We talked about abolishing it. We didn't talk about reforming Jim Crow segregation. We talked about abolishing it. And so when it comes to the new Jim Crow, I think that reform, that's not ambitious enough. That's not going to bring us the kind of change that we need. So in Choco, uh, I recommend transformation. Uh, that's what I think we need. And so the folks who, who want to be on the front lines, uh, what you're going to do is to work for transforming our criminal justice system into one that is truly about equal justice under the law. And I'm glad you brought that up. One of the transformational um, suggestions that's out there and that you discuss is prison abolition. And my knee-jerk response, and this could also be from my background, I'm, I am a white woman, is when I hear prison abolition... I think about, honestly, the first thing that pops into my mind 
is uh, white serial killers and how I don't want them to ever be released. And I think about violent criminals and violent pedophiles and things like this. And I think to myself, oh, no, that's terrifying. How could we ever abolish prisons? So when you're dealing with someone like me, that's my knee-jerk response. How do you address that? How do you talk to people and, and get that initial fear response to settle down and think about the alternative and think about the theory of prison abolition? Yeah, so abolition, it, it takes a while, and prison abolition does not mean tomorrow opening every door to every prison cell. It's a process that's best thought of as gradual decarceration, and the hard cases, I agree, are that 10%. Except that people don't know it's just 10%. So if we think of the worst crimes, homicide and sexual offenses, sex crimes against children, sex crimes against adults, that's about 10% of people who are incarcerated. And I don't know exactly what to do with those folks. I think a lot of times uh, the way that we think about ways to respond to other kinds of crime, uh, treatment, not punishment, thinking about it as a public health issue, those might well apply to that 10%. But I agree those are harder cases, and so let's not start with them. Let's figure out what to do with them. In the meantime, let's worry about the other 90%. You know, uh, prisons now are locking up so many old people, about 10% of people in prison are over 55, that they are literally operating assisted living facilities. We can think about the people who are locked up. This is 80% who are either addicts, or mentally ill. You could say that prisons are the largest providers of mental health services in the United States, except unfortunately most of the prisons don't actually provide those services. They had that need, but those folks who need treatment, they're not receiving it. And in fact, often the brutality, the wretched conditions of prison makes things worse, not better for people who are ill. When I was a prosecutor and I had to go to a prison to interview a witness, first thing I would do when I got home was to take a shower. It just makes you feel. There's something about that. You know, sometimes inmates talk about that prison smell. There's just something about being in that environment that degrades the soul. And so what I ask people who are concerned about abolition, legitimate concerns, is what do we expect prison does? What does it do for us? And the hope is that it keeps us safe from people who would harm us if they weren't locked up, and it makes people who've caused harm accountable, responsible for what they've done. And a lot of us who've worked in the system know that prison doesn't do either of those very well, because so many people are locked up for for nonviolent offenses. When you take those mainly young men and women and put them in a place with more hardened, violent offenders. It's like sending those young folks to a finishing school for crime. And for people who've caused harm, you know, we need to start asking some of the same questions that we now ask about people who've committed drug offenses. You know, are there ways to think about treatment as a way of resolving the situation, as a way of, of making all of us safer? 
even if folks deserve punishment, do they deserve to be punished for as long as we punish them now? And there are actually great examples of communities that are opting out of this regime of locking up folks for everything and throwing away the key, including for people who've committed violence. So in Chocode, I lift up a wonderful program in Brooklyn called Common Justice. And this is for people who have caused harm, they've committed a violent offense. If the victim agrees, then the case is taken completely out of the criminal process, and it goes into a restorative justice program. And it's not diversion. It's not like if the guy, and they're usually men, it's not like if the guy messes up, he's then going to go back to the criminal process. It's a program where, you know, sometimes as long as two years, the person who's caused harm has to make it up to the person who he hurt in a way that she feels that she's been made, if not whole, made better. And the person who's caused the harm also has to take responsibility for healing himself in a way that he's not going to hurt anybody else. It's tough conversations. It's therapy. It's going in in a way that sometimes the guys in the middle of this program, they say, man, I wish I'd gone to jail because this is too hard. But guess what? It works way better. Again, in chokehold, you know, you talked about the data. I'm all about empirical evidence. I think too much of our criminal justice strategies is driven by emotion, frankly, politics, sometimes racism. And so I want to look at the data. And what the data tells me about this wonderful common justice program is that it works. Uh, the men and women who come through this process are much less likely to reoffend than somebody who's gone to jail. And another data point, you know, it sounds radical when I talk about abolition, prison abolition. Lee, it's something that 60% of victims choose right now. About 60% of people who've been hurt by somebody else choose not to call the police. And I think with a lot of these folks, they understand that a punishment intervention isn't going to do anybody any good. And so what the vision is, is to find ways that individuals and families and communities can be safe and, and can be free that don't involve locking people in cages for years and years. So those are dreams for both our present and our future. But when you are a young black man dealing with the current system, you have a chapter in the book, I believe it's chapter seven, in which you offer step-by-step -step practical advice. Can you talk a little bit about how you came up with this advice, why you included this chapter in the book, and just talk a little bit about Chapter 7, which I found so fascinating. You know, it's funny because that originally was the whole book. I get, as a former prosecutor, as a law professor, I'm constantly getting calls from people who have caught a case. And that's the expression in hip-hop for getting arrested or getting prosecuted. And they want to know. 
what should I do? And then I have a whole nother set of conversations with, with young black men about how to avoid getting the attention of the police. And finally, I had my own experience of when I was a prosecutor. I had the most high-profile case in the Department of Justice. I was prosecuting a United States senator for public corruption. I was the junior lawyer on that team. And while I was working on that case, I got arrested. And I got prosecuted for a crime I didn't commit. It was a silly little misdemeanor dispute over a parking space. And I ended up going to trial. And I beat my case. And I beat my case because I had the best lawyer in the city of Washington to represent me, Michelle Roberts. Shout out to her. She's now the executive director of the National Basketball Players Association. But before that, she'd been a public defender and then went into private practice, was widely regarded as the best trial lawyer in the city. And I was fortunate to have her represent me. Uh, I beat my case because I had legal skills. I had literally prosecuted people in the courtroom where I was being prosecuted. I beat my case because I had a a kind of standing in the community. Uh, We made sure the jurors knew that I'd gone to college and law school and the kinds of things that shouldn't matter but do. And, And finally, I beat my case because I was innocent. But when I thought about it, that didn't seem like the most important reasons. In some ways, I would rather have been guilty and have Michelle Roberts as my lawyer than be innocent and had a lousy lawyer. And so that was also part of the genesis for this chapter. Since I beat my case, I wanted to give inside information for other people who had caught a case, how you can have a a better outcome. But, Lee, I'm trying to keep it real. So this isn't stuff that you learned in a civics class. Uh, This is, again, inside information from a former prosecutor about what really works, including how to dress. When I was a prosecutor, we used to laugh at how some folks came dressed to criminal court. They actually looked guilty. Uh, It's about how to choose your lawyer Uh, I get so many calls from folks distressed because they have a public defender. Well, sometimes a public defender is the best lawyer you could have. They often have more inside knowledge about the local courthouse, um, and they have more experience than some fancy lawyers at defending the kinds of crimes that a lot of poor folks get charged with. So it depends on the specific area, and in the book I named some of the best public defenders in the country, if you get arrested in a place like Brooklyn or D.C., San Francisco, you're down lucky if you get a public defender to represent you. So, again, it's practical tips. Some of it is just, you know, I have to tell you, it broke my heart to write it. So I talked to some of my police officer friends and some of my defense attorney friends about this issue of black kids, especially black teenagers, feeling like the police are just always looking at them. What do I have to do, these kids ask, in order for the police to leave me alone? And I have a list, Lee, and it's a list that I hope will break your heart. It did. It's things like, don't stand on a corner with with, uh, two other black guys. 
don't be in a car with a white woman. Uh, don't be in a, a late model car. A black man in a black Stuff SUV. Stuff that I got from police. Yeah, from black officers, white officers, Latino officers. They say, we, you know, we hate this. But if we get a call, you know, three black kids on a corner, we don't say, well, that's not illegal. We'll say, okay, Sarge, we'll break it up. So, you know, some people will say, well, gee, what are you telling black men that they don't live in a free country? And the answer is that black men don't live in a free country. We don't live in the same universe. We don't have the same rights as a practical matter that some other people have. Another thing I thought was very useful about that chapter was that you also talked to the friends and loved ones and and how they should act and react and what they should do if their loved one is picked up by the police. And something that I hadn't thought about was you say, don't go immediately to the police station. That would have been my first instinct. Nothing good could come from it. Again, the police are not going to let you see the guy while he's waiting to be arraigned. Arraignment is the process where people are, are formally told by a judge what they're being charged with. So if your kid or your partner gets locked up and he's waiting arraignment, in most jurisdictions, you're not going to be allowed to see him. But if you go to the police station and it's a serious charge, then the cops might very well try to interview you. Like, well, where was he last night? When was the last time you saw him? You know, how does he know this other person? And you want to talk to your loved one's lawyer before you talk to the police or prosecutors, before you answer any of those questions. But police are really good at getting people to talk. And so it's just best to avoid that situation. The best thing you can do is to try to get a lawyer for that person so that he or she is represented at arraignment. If something went down and there are people who know what happened, just get a list of names. Don't write down what they say, but just get a list of names to give to the lawyer. So lots of other practical tips like that. You know, you want the person who's in this situation to have the best outcome. And a lot of times people mean well, but they end up making the situation worse, not better. So again, lots of practical tips, not just for the young woman or man who is in the snares of the system, uh, but for the, the loved ones who, who want to help them, things that you can do that can actually make a difference. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Again, for listeners, your book is Chokehold, A Renegade Prosecutor's Radical Thoughts on How to Disrupt the System. And if readers and listeners are interested in reaching out to you, are there any ways that they can do that? Do you have any social media that they should go to, uh, any other books that they should check out? Sure. So I have a Facebook page, Professor Paul Butler, and I'm on Twitter at Law Prof Butler. So Twitter at Law Prof Butler, Facebook, Professor Paul Butler. So hit me up on any of those social media and you can get chokehold at bookstores all over the country and on Amazon and other internet sellers. So I hope folks will check it out. Got the One of the best compliments you can get in this space, the New York Times said that it's the best book on these issues since the new Jim Crow. 
And the new Jim Crow really is one of the events, because it's almost more of a, a movement or an event than a book, that really ignited this new attention to criminal justice. And so for the New York Times to favorably compare it, to say it's the best book since the new Jim Crow on this stuff, uh, I did the happy dance. <laughs> My publisher and I did the happy dance. And I guess if there's a, a way to end it all uh, on a positive note, you know, one of the things that African-American people have done for this country every 100 years or so is to, to save the country. So, so black folks did that when we led the fight against slavery. And then we did it again when we led the fight against the old Jim Crow. And so... Uh, I hope that in sparking this movement against the brutality uh, of the way that policing happens now, against the wretched, the misery uh, that prison causes to literally 2 million people in the United States, if we think about alternative ways that we can be safer and freer, then once again, black folks are going to lead this effort to save our country. So, Well, thank you so much, Paul. Again, this is Paul Butler. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review on your favorite podcast listening service.